Hello, hello everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SAS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the current VC stage investment market and some key metrics to pay attention to post-COVID for SaaS founders. Today, we have our special guest, Cindy Padnos, joining us. Cindy is an innovator and an advocate for all things entrepreneurial. She is a founder, both of a VC-backed tech startup and now a VC firm, with a passion for enabling experimentation that can lead to the discovery of new business models and unique points of leverage. Leverage. Cindy bleeds B2B enterprise tech, being labeled as the queen of B2B and a place at the table with the top institutional investors in that category. Sydney has been working with the enterprise tech startups for more than 20 years, from founder, operating executive, advisor, and investor. She founded Illuminate Ventures in 2009, which is a seed stage and early stage venture capital firm that invests exclusively in enterprise cloud and mobile software companies. Illuminate seeks entrepreneurs that are reinventing the enterprise with products that deliver dramatic productivity and decision-making improvements while leveraging better, faster, cheaper cloud technologies and innovative business models. Their sweet spot is as a lead or co-lead of startups, first institutional round with financing, and their team team is made up of experienced investors with prior operational success, complemented by a world-class 40-plus member business advisory council. Uh, some early-stage investments include companies such as Jacoby, Cafe X Communications, Bedrock Analytics, Bright Edge, Content Stack, and among many, many others. So welcome, Cindy. Really glad to have you on today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Hopefully that was a good introduction. Um, <laughs> that was uh, an astounding introduction. <laughs> Thank you. No worries. So prior to your investing career, you led several successful venture-backed entrepreneurial efforts and was the founder and CEO of Vivant. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly, which is now part of Oracle. Um, Can you share with our audience kind of your, what's your background with SaaS from launching and leading Vivant from raising VC capital up until acquisition by Evolve Software, which I think later became part of Oracle? Yeah. So Vivant, that's, that's a way one would pronounce it because it's a French word. Um, means alive or living in French. And the reason we chose that name, um, it's a long story, but the short version is that it was a procurement application for what we've then focused on, as we said, services procurement. But what that really meant was procurement of contract labor. Um, So it was people, it was alive and living things that you were procuring. And um, the reason I mention it and the company name is your question about SaaS. So we started that company in uh, 1998, late 1998, I think it was October. And I remember our move-in day, we had orange and black t-shirts uh, for Halloween. And, um, and we adopted those as the color of our, of our colors of our firm as well. It just seemed proficious. And in any case, that company was a very, very early SaaS software company, meaning it existed before the public cloud. We decided to create a multi-tenant architecture um, and deliver the product as a subscription revenue model service, but we didn't have cloud computing. Uh, AWS hadn't hadn't launched yet, and so we had to buy all the servers, buy all the uh, Oracle database licenses, and host the darn thing at Rackspace. So it cost a lot of money. We still had to have all the skills you might have to run your own server farm and everything else. Um, And... And we were only getting the smaller revenue streams that you normally get from a subscription service, not the big upfront 
um, what had been the traditional, uh, you know, uh, license fees that were a one-time larger license. Uh, that was a hard transition to go through. And, but we felt very strongly, and, and I certainly did as, as a CEO, about the value of recurring revenue. And I, I had been in too many companies at that point where I saw that every quarter it was, it was you know, uh, uh, traumatic. I don't know how else to put it, whether you would either make or break the quarter based perhaps on one transaction. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the kind of company I wanted to run. I also firmly believed in the idea that customers should have a voice um, and they should have the opportunity to tell you they liked your product or they didn't every year. Uh, and that just wasn't true with traditional enterprise software licenses. People paid a million dollars or more, frequently more, upfront. And then we had this concept back then, the word probably doesn't even exist anymore, at least it isn't used, of shelfware. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of it? shelfware? That, that's software that's never used that you paid for, you bought, you have a right to use, but you never use. So it's sitting on the shelf somewhere was kind of concept. And it really was because back then they sent out CDs and you had to install it and, and all the rest. <laughs> so um, so my involvement with SaaS is all the way from that time to where we are today. And the reason that we formed Illuminate was largely because I, I had joined another um, enterprise tech investing uh, venture capital firm that was a traditional Series A fund um, after having sold uh, our, our company. And I came to realize that AWS crept in, um, and this was around 2006 kind of time frame, that 2007, 2008, founders didn't need $4 million to get started anymore. They didn't have to buy the database licenses. They didn't have to buy servers before they could write a line of code. And in fact, I came to believe that um, you had to be either foolish or lazy if you didn't just flunk down your credit card, start buying that cloud computing resource and build a prototype before you ever talk to any investor. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when I realized there was a real market opportunity for the kind of investing that we do today. Curious what the cost difference was back then to you know, start building your first prototype uh, from what you needed to like today and mm-hmm. you know, I would imagine a couple of grand maximum to get started. I don't think the- we could have done much of anything. And, and again, these were enterprise grade products. They were yeah. not something that was going to be, you know, put on somebody's iPhone. They were, they were, they had to go through security testing. You had to have single sign-on. You had to have all of those things. Um, I don't think we could have really built anything without a couple of million dollars in the bank. Wow. wow. Uh, I mean, the data, the Oracle <laughs> database license alone was hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay. Okay. You know, just getting a license and, and <laughs> they didn't have programs uh, like AWS and Google and, and Microsoft Azure have today where, you know, any of our portfolio founders receive hundreds of thousands of dollars of free cloud computing when they're first getting started. Free, right? Exactly. N- no credit card, no nothing, right? Um, nothing like that existed then. Nothing was free. <laughs> wow. So we live in a good time to be in the SaaS industry. <laughs> almost so almost every founder or CEO, you know, their dream or hope when first launching a startup is to get acquired at some point by a big corporation. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that you had some vision at, at your point when you started. Um, can you describe that moment of how your life changed or how you felt if there was any uh, key things you remember after the acquisition by Evolve and, and then became 
Oracle? After or before or during? I mean, I, I'll say mm. this. I mean, mm. I don't know that most founders go in assuming they're going to be acquired. Most of the founders I talk to want to go public. They want to build a big, enduring brand. Sure. And those are the kind of founders we're looking for. Um, the reality, however, is very different that I think it's around 95 or better percent of companies that actually get a successful exit are acquired, you know, don't go public. So realistically, you want a founder who understands that, but I don't think you want someone where that's their goal from day one, you know, what we're, and there are angel investors and who other, others who would be perfectly happy with, you know, two years. 3x return on their funds, quick exit, you know, that can be fine, but it's not what we're looking for for, for venture style returns. Um, so I frankly was not delighted to have to sell our company. And um, we had more than one offer on the table. We, we had um, a term sheet from PeopleSoft, if you remember them, that was before they were acquired, right? And mm-hmm. um, uh, we were in conversations with SAP, uh, and we had the term sheet as well from Evolve. And yet the only reason we were ser- serious about being acquired is the timing. Um, you have to remember that this was in January of 2001, and the world was falling apart around us. Mm-hmm. Um, our lead investor was an extremely well-known firm, but they were primarily well-known because they were relatively new, uh, they were primarily well-known because they had actually gone public themselves. Um, a very unusual thing, they were what's called a business development corp, a BDC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a firm called Internet Capital Group. And along with all of the rest of the market, their stock was tanking, which meant everyone knew that they were going to be hard-pressed to be able to raise any new capital and to be able to deploy you know, follow on capital into their existing portfolio. So not such a good place to be for us. It was, it was honestly, it was kind of like having a boat anchor around your neck <laughs> uh, because a- every other investor knew that your lead investor probably couldn't participate in the next round. Okay? Mm. That was a tough place to be. Um, the really good news was we had built something of value. We had um, a product that was going to be useful to um, a, a broad set of constituents and that integrated very nicely and importantly into the whole um, stack of an ERP system. Because if you think about it, if you, they had Ariba on one side that was for hard good co- procurement. They had us on the other side for soft goods. And we, were, we had a partnership with Ariba and with some of the other hard goods um, procurement platforms as well. Okay, and then after the acquisition, did you, did you feel like there was a it was a life changing moment at that point? What was kind of your thoughts there? <laughs> well, it was life changing in several ways. I had already pre negotiated my way out the door. Um, I knew that I had I, I, I'm not a good employee. Let's just put it that way. Sure, yeah. uh, the idea of going to work for someone else again just didn't appeal to me, and mm. I, I knew I would either go start another company or or do something else independently. And um, so I didn't feel trapped in any way. I, um, I did have to learn how to um, sell stock in a publicly traded company that, uh, where we owned a very large portion of that company because as their share price dropped, um, we actually, at the, at the end of the transaction, because we had negotiated a price, not a number of shares, we ended up getting a lot more shares than anyone had thought we would. 
Okay. And um, and so it, it was complex. I was dealing with figuring out how and when to sell those shares for all of our shareholders, not for just ourselves, mm. and um, and had responsibilities there to all of our our investors that that I wanted to focus on as well. Got it. So yeah, how did I feel? You know, I felt at some level a little bit of relief because I knew there was a great um, opportunity for for jobs at a time when the I mean this is the dot com bust, right? Yeah. And yeah. yet all of our team had jobs, um, and we had had an incredibly loyal team. We 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 practiced what the industry calls open book management, meaning we basically opened the kimono and told them all along the way what was happening in terms of the acquisition and what our cash position was and what the risk was. And uh, we did not have a single employee leave during that entire time. The, the, the level of loyalty that we received in, in exchange, if you will, for our honesty and integrity was unbelievable. It was phenomenal. That's fantastic. So I, I, just one follow-up question on that. So you, had, you said you had three term sheets on the table, one from SAP, Evolve, and one other what was the kind of the main decision there? Was it strictly like the offer, the dollar value, or was it also a component of if they would keep the staff? Or what was? Do you remember at that point what was the decision? Well, yeah, actually, yeah, I remember. <laughs> you don't yeah. forget these things, but <laughs> sure. um, you know, it was an interesting dilemma because uh, PeopleSoft probably, well, technically was a higher value offer, mm -hmm. but I knew that the founder of PeopleSoft was an investor in one of our competitors, mm. and I knew in my heart of hearts that they were probably negotiating with them in parallel and asking each of us to sign a no shop. Okay. And so <laughs> we just decided it, it wasn't worth the risk that, that the high probability was since he was, it, it's hard to take that bias out of a transaction. Right. Sure. Uh, and, and the people who, who had founded this competing company uh, were former PeopleSoft employees as well. Mm -hmm. And um, we just kind of looked at that and said, you know, this isn't, and, and we I outright uh, with their M&A team, with their corp dev team, I asked them, um, can you tell me, can you assure me you're not signing a term sheet in parallel with them? And I got dead silence. <laughs> okay, so that was your answer? Yeah. Yeah. And SAP cool. was just slow. I mean, it's that simple. Mm -hmm. It could have been more interesting, uh, potentially, I suppose. But uh, we had two things in hand. We had brought in an investment banker but that we brought in the banker to help us negotiate terms, which was really to our good fortune. One of our investors was American Express Ventures, and they had recommended a small uh, boutique investment bank that helped us with the transaction. And that was that was super helpful. Very cool. So that was in 2001. And then now in 2009, uh, you said you were working at another firm prior to this. What was the motivation behind and decision behind starting Illuminate Ventures? Uh, what was your investment thesis at that time? Like what was the size, stage, location? And how has yeah. it transformed to what it is today, which is you know the B2B enterprise cloud sure, and mobile sure. computing? Well, from day one, the firm has been B2B enterprise software focused exclusively. That hasn't okay. changed. Nor has our geographic focus, meaning we invest across North America. We've never been one of these firms that, that only invests in Silicon Valley. Um, mm -hmm. We've also had a thesis from day one around opening the door wider. Uh, frankly, being a bit more inclusive than most traditional firms are in terms of the types of entrepreneurs and the stage of company that we'll invest in. Um, so going back to the original thesis, what um, I think was unique at the time, and it doesn't sound very unique today, 
is that there really were no seed stage funds, what back then what people were calling micro VCs, mm -hmm. um, that focused exclusively on enterprise software, on B2B software. Most of the founders of these micro VC funds had come out of places like Google, had a big exit, and were focused on the consumer internet world. Okay. And there was actually, I think, a fundamental belief that um, you couldn't build an enterprise software company capital efficiently, that a micro VC would have no place because they'd be diluted like crazy and never have enough ownership in the company and never have enough capital for them. But interestingly enough, I knew differently. Um, and I knew it because of that company I had founded pre-public cloud. But there were two elements. It wasn't just that the technology had changed and it was so much less costly to start a business because of the public cloud. What had also changed dramatically that most people didn't recognize was the entire world of um, inside selling uh, that was enabled because of all of the marketing automation tools. Mm -hmm. So Marketo, Eloqua, Responsis, all of those products had never existed back in that old enterprise software world and mm -hmm. did. And all of a sudden, we saw portfolio companies at that firm I was already with um, doing all of their sales with inside salespeople, which mm -hmm. cost probably easily one-fourth the cost of a traditional field sales rep. So they were hiring forty dollars and $50,000 a year. Now, mind you, this is $2,006, we're, we're you know, many years after that, but they were hiring those for forty dollars and $50,000 a year, selling fifty dollars to $100,000 annual recurring revenue contracts. Mm -hmm. And your traditional enterprise software rep, you know, feet on the street, carries his briefcase around or her, um, they were a quarter of a million dollars minimum, even mm -hmm. then. And so what I saw was that the economics of selling in the B2B world were dramatically changing. And maybe a third component. Because of that, because prices were a fraction of what they had been in the enterprise world, the market opened up much wider as well. We could suddenly start selling the same kinds of products to mid-market companies, even to SMBs in some cases, versus just those you know, giant enterprise software, uh, enterprise um, uh, you know, Fortune 500 kind of companies. So I just fundamentally believe that there was a value proposition for an enterprise-only focused fund. That was number one. Mm -hmm. Um, behind that, very candidly, I also, as a woman founder and CEO, knew that there was this burgeoning number of women entrepreneurs that were really being under-targeted, that um, didn't have the same access to venture capital that their peer, male peers did. And I wanted to find a way to simply open the door wider, to give them access, and if they were as good or better than any other opportunity to invest in them. And um, so it was those two fundamental premises, I think, that, that you could do seed stage investing from a small fund, mm -hmm. an enterprise, and, and have some great outcomes, and that um, there was also this under-targeted uh, population. Got it. And then today, are you guys investing only in uh, the U.S. or all over North America? Uh, we have several uh, software companies in Canada. Um, uh, that we've invested in, and, and we continue to look at opportunities in Canada. Uh, we haven't done anything in Latin America. I think there's you know, certain skill set and language barrier a bit uh, for that, but we've 
half of our portfolio companies are outside of the Bay Area, but they're in everywhere from you know LA to New York and and in Canada and, and several locations in between. Uh, yeah. And what else has changed? You know, I, I brought on my partner Jennifer a year and a half ago, cool. uh, who's just phenomenal. Uh, she and I, uh, she had been the head of products in the company I founded. Um, went on to Placeware, which is acquired by Microsoft, then um, ran products at DocuSign and Smartsheet and Flowroot. So she's a phenomenal operator and um, just a ton of fun for me to work with. So that's about a year and a half old and, and kind of really doubles our capacity as a firm. Wow. And then in terms of revenue, <clears throat> a seed stage, I'm assuming you guys don't work with pre, pre-revenue. What's kind of the sweet spot um, for size are you guys minimum like you know what's what you look for traction? What's that number that you guys look like? It's a really good question, and 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 this is something that's evolved. I would say in our first two funds, I don't think I had nearly as much awareness of the opportunity that existed to invest in um, companies that are actually a little bit further along but have some unique attributes. So revenue isn't the key criteria, but some kind of customer traction or product traction is. Mm-hmm. We've invested um, out of our current fund, which is our third fund, but Roman numeral two. That the first fund was a very small um, proof of concept fund that we gave a name to, uh, rather than a Roman numeral. So anyway, this current fund, uh, we have two companies that are spinouts um, from larger organizations: one from a law firm and one from uh, a very large uh, chip manufacturer that was being acquired and spun out all of its software businesses. Um, we have two companies that entirely bootstrapped to over a million dollars in recurring revenue with, with no outside capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have others that have been through accelerators and incubators, um, taking very, very small amounts of capital. And, and, and maybe another investment we're just closing on this week uh, that self-funded through SBIRs, uh, which was a, you know, very unique to, for them to be able to gain uh, government you know, non-dilutive capital before we invested and build a really amazing um, set of technology and team. Wow. Um, so coming to today in 2020, so today of this recording, we're in August. Um, I see you've made at least two new investments. I think you posted this somewhere since March. Um, now, you guys being an early stage seed fund, what has been your experience when, and perspective on the volatility of deal flow and investments with the, the COVID-19 pandemic? And how has that affected your investment outlook going forward for the rest of 2020? Yeah. So we are um, perhaps unique in that we closed an investment in March. We closed another in May and we're closing a third one this week. Um, we're not holding back. We, we have um, a very clear vision of the kinds of entrepreneurs and companies we want to invest in. And when we see them, we're going to continue to invest. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're about half to two thirds of the way through our investment cycle with this fund. And so uh, it, it wouldn't make any sense for us to take a wait and see kind of an attitude. I, I will tell you um, that some of that is based on my own experience of investing in 2008 timeframe at the, the, the dot com. Um, it wasn't dot com, sorry, at that point it was the whole giant global financial crisis. And, you know, two of the most successful companies we've had in our portfolio were companies that were this big at that time, you know, tiny. Both of them have grown to be $100 million revenue run rate companies. Um, One of them is a company called Exactly that we took public in 2015 and then 
Uh, two years later, it was acquired by Vista Private Equity for half a billion. And uh, the other is a company called Bright Edge that we're still investors in uh, that's the market leader in search engine optimization and um, continues to be a very, very successful company. And what I learned is that um, companies you invest in during tough times, the founders really understand the value of a dollar. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to choose to raise additional capital too quickly if they don't have to. And mm -hmm. so they're going to create optionality for themselves and their business by being focused on um, not overhiring, on building real uh, proof of uh, market adoption before um, putting a lot of resource into the sales and marketing functions. And um, it's, it's a good place and a good time to be starting a business. Um, COVID's tough. You know, it's tough in a lot of different ways for all of our portfolio companies. Yeah. Learning, you know, how to manage people remotely is a big issue for some of our companies that are further along that have, you know, several hundred employees. Mm -hmm. uh, virtual HR is, is, is not the easiest thing in the world. Right? <laughs> and sales motivation. We, we have a great company in that space called Hoopla that's helping mm -hmm. companies be, um, uh, more, helping their employees to be more engaged and be rewarded. We have a company, Cafe X, where they're much, um, they're a secure collaboration platform. Um, we have uh, we're investors in Coupe, which is the largest e-commerce company in Korea. That's a little bit of an accident. I'll admit they acquired one of our portfolio companies. Otherwise, <laughs> we wouldn't be investing in Korea. But um, all of those companies are actually benefiting from COVID, and um, and and some are you know facing a rocky road in terms of customer adoption and that kind of thing as well. Yeah, we're, we've been kind of lucky in our in our portfolio. The companies we've worked with, we've always been remotely since day one. Um, but one thing we've always struggled with was salespeople and you know getting that motivation and hitting them. And yeah, so I, I don't think it's been solved yet. Take um, a look at Hoopla. <laughs> Hoopla. Okay, I'll check it. H O O P L A. You got it. <laughs> okay, perfect. We'll make a note of that in the show notes. Um, on the enterprise side, though, um, kind of because that's where you guys focus is has the decision making to buy software renew slowed down in, in the Bay Area or has there just been a change on their focus to, you know, looking for more specific solutions to deal with these changes such as HR, sales and whatnot and remote work? You mean have have our, our portfolio company decisions slowed down or have their customer decisions slowed down? Their, their customer decisions. Yeah. Okay. That's what I, I thought. I just wasn't mm. clear. Sorry. So in terms of... Um, buying process. There is absolutely no doubt that most of our portfolio companies are experiencing a slower process. Okay. Um, and the reason for that in each company is a little bit different, but primarily what's happening is if a decision used to be able to be made at this level, now it's at this level. Mm. Okay. The budget may still be there. The decision to buy may still be, you know, happening, but when you've got to, you know, where it used to perhaps be a department head decision, it may now be the CMO or the CTO. Where it used to be the CMO decision, it may now be the CFO or the CEO or even the board. Mm. Uh, and we have experienced that in several of, of our portfolio companies. Now, they're pretty smart, our founders, um, I'm happy to say. Mm. And what they've done very successfully in many cases is pivot their focus of their target customer into sectors that they know are expanding and accelerating because of COVID. 
So, you know, if you're selling SEO, as an example, I hope you're not spending a lot of time trying to sell to United Airlines. On the other hand, there are lots of different products and services out there that are accelerating because of COVID. Healthcare, as an example, telemedicine, there are all sorts of other areas where their demand for SEO is increasing. The search volume is increasing dramatically in certain areas. And, And that's just one example of a company who's come you know, just been very, very smart about retargeting their um, their sales efforts. And, and I would say every one of our portfolio companies has been able to do that to some degree. Makes sense. Um, anything else that you, you are advising specifically or you're hear, hearing from your founders in your portfolio of SaaS companies uh, around planning for both, let's say, the short term, medium and long term for this new normal? And how are they preparing for these multiple scenarios and uncertainty? Such as yeah, that. it's that's a good question. You know, that one, yeah. one of the big struggles some of our further along companies have is do we do we plan that sales is always going to be a remote function? Um, because they they did certainly see um, a productivity hit when everyone started working from home. Not because people weren't working hard, but because the collaboration that happens in an office space is different. It it helps for whatever reason to accelerate sales. Um, so there are decisions that might seem no brainers in the sense, well, it costs less, um, people are happier working from home, but there's still some decision trade-offs around productivity, right? And, and, and actual outcome. Uh, so some of our, I would say probably half of our portfolio companies are deciding that they are not renewing leases, Mm -hmm. um, and, and are basically working their way out of any significant office leases at all which is you know, very interesting to see. And the other half have already decided, but, they, but they've made decisions. You know, they, they know what's best for their team and their culture, and they've decided, no, we're going to have office space. It just may look a little bit different, not just the configuration of it, but who comes in and when they come in you know, from what it was in the past. Um, on, a, on a cost basis, I would say that every one of them has taken quite aggressive steps um, to figure out, to determine ways that they can reduce their costs, whether that, you know, well, well beyond just their, you know, um, office leases. Uh, mm-hmm. We have companies that are fundamentally renegotiating all of their cloud service contracts. Um, that's especially our further along companies that spend, uh, you know, quite a bit of money on, on, on that function. We have others that have um, identified um ways that they can actually stretch out payments over time. Certainly their customers are asking for that as well. Many of them um, did take advantage of some of the government stimulus kind of, um, you know, capital that was available and um, payroll tax, you know, delays and and those kinds of things, uh, which helps from a short-term perspective. But I think longer term, they're not weighted. Um, they're okay. actually fairly aggressively identifying what they believe is is a their differentiated strategy right now, mm-hmm. um, and and moving forward to implement that. They're, they're hiring in some cases very strategically because they can find talent right now that they don't think will be as easy to find six months or a year from now as well. That's a good point. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, besides the capital support that Luminate provides, so that's obviously super important. Um, what are some other underrated resources that you share with startups or you advise that they can leverage to grow their business? We 
have, um, you mentioned that <laughs> in that unbelievably long introduction, <laughs> uh, I was like, gosh, I must be really old to have all that <laughs> happen. But um, yeah, we have, you mentioned a, a really incredible business advisory council. We have, I think it's about 45 members of that. Some of those folks have been members of our advisory council all the way from when I was actually originally planning to launch the firm, which was that 2009 timeframe. Uh, mm -hmm. We raised our first fund in 2011. Uh, but they are all from the enterprise tech world, uh, corporate executives, founders themselves of, of very successful enterprise software companies, other VCs and, and people from that venture ecosystem. Um, and then we also have a, a group of nonprofit CEOs that are in organizations that coach, mentor, seed fund, educate um, high-tech entrepreneurs as well. Um, from Stanford, from Carnegie Mellon, from uh, Astia, Springboard, etc. all of those people. Those resources are resources not to, just to us um, as um, the partners in the firm, but also to our portfolio companies. Several of them have and, and still do sit on some of our company boards. Um, the board chair at exactly when it went public was one of our advisory council members. The um, board member at Cafe X, one of our advisory co uh, council members who's worked in the category that that company's in for 30 years of his career. So um, they help us with deal flow. They help us with due diligence. They frequently are uh, parts of companies that become the first customers of our portfolio companies. They have helped us with M&A transactions, including to, you know, many of these people sit on public company boards and we've had uh, three of our, four of our portfolio companies acquired by public companies, um, a couple of those through introductions from our advisory council members. Wow. So that's an incredible group. We also have um, a super strong internship program with Cal, Stanford, Wharton's West Coast, and Carnegie Mellon. And we've ad hoc uh, once in a while some other interns as well. But we have uh, six to eight of those people and sometimes more throughout the class year. So they're not summer interns. Mm. Um, frequently, they work with us for several years, not just for you know a few months in a summer. And they help us not just with diligence um, when we're investing in a company, but they'll frequently get involved afterwards. One of them uh, just did a whole pricing strategy uh, analysis for one of our companies. Another did a whole competitive assessment of their you know competitive landscape. And those are resources that, that we try to bring to bear to the portfolio as well. That's super cool. Now, uh, are the entrepreneurs have access to these this, this council board at any at any time if they need? They can just reach out and email them, or they they just, they go through us because mm -hmm. we can help them get kind of faster response. Sure, sure, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, they they do. I mean, we have an entire list that we share with them mm -hmm. of these people's backgrounds and you know, including their history. What what. I mean, we have people who've been um, the CMO of, of Unum right now, who was the prior uh, CMO and CFO of the Windows division of Microsoft. We have the prior head of corporate strategy of IBM, um, who sits on three public company boards right now. We have an incredible group of people. Wow. I mean, people like Ken Goldman, who's been CFO of Yahoo, Sybase, Fortinet. I don't even know how many other companies that are there. These are phenomenal advisors and we don't ask a lot of them to be honest mm -hmm. you know we, we okay. don't need to so when we do ask uh, for their help 
they are super responsive. Nice. So we, we have a couple of uh, you know unofficial advisors. Um, did you guys do that? You know, set that up from day one, or was this something you did over time? And do you suggest moving to that you know official advisory? Uh, you know, board, uh, and that's something we're mm -hmm. considering. I'm just trying to think, you know, what the value is at what point. Yeah, so I started this from day one of the firm. In fact, it was in place before we had a fund. Um, mm -hmm. I think we started with about 10 people. And so mm -hmm. it's obviously grown over time. We've had almost zero attrition. We've had a couple people who left because they retired or because one of them joined another firm and said, I think it might be a conflict of interest. And we were great, no problem. But um, it definitely has evolved over time. We don't recruit for it anymore. We sometimes get a referral from someone that was like, oh my gosh, we can't say no. This would be just such a phenomenal person. I think mm -hmm. we've added four people in the last two years. Um, and, you know, they're, they're just incredible people. But we've built that board to be incredibly diverse as well. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it, it is more than 50% women. Um, and yet these are some of the most successful people in high tech in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, we have Latino found, you know, members, we have Asian members, we have black members, we have, we have a very diverse advisory council and that's very intentional. Uh, so the reason I started it, to be honest, is because I had had in the company I have founded um, an mm -hmm. advisory council. Mm -hmm. And when I set that up, we had um, we had people like Michael Stonebreaker who were willing to be advisors. And, and many people might, might not know Michael, but he was literally the founder of the relational database system. Okay. He, he was the, the guy who invented Postgres and Ingress mm -hmm. and um, SQL um, mm -hmm. while he was, a, I think, a PhD and professor at, at, at Berkeley and then founded the company that was one of the earliest database software companies, Ingress. He wasn't an advisor to me. He was an advisor to our CTO, right? right. And, we, and that's just an example. So we, we had even then a goal of having um, a group of advisors that could be helpful to our entire team, not just to me as, as, the, as the CEO. And so when we built our business advisory council for the firm, we took the same approach. We want people who can be helpful to all of our portfolio teams, not just the CEO, there mm -hmm. either mm -hmm. and not just to us mm. and by the way you know um most of these people have skin in the game uh there are okay. lps in our fund got it that's that's what i figured yeah make, make that makes more sense um now speaking of the investment criteria so we talked about you know the actual vehicle or the horse uh, you know being enterprise and uh you know certain revenue or, or certain things you're looking for can you pinpoint any trends you have seen in in founders in your portfolio whether it's their personality or their background or skill set that has generally performed better in terms of you know overall performance for, for your portfolio and for the company that you see repeatedly? I would say two things. M most of our founders, at least someone on the team, has deep domain experience. It's okay. not every member of the team, but they really know what the business problem is that they're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would say that's one piece of it. The other is experimentation. Uh, those founders who do a great deal of, of customer data gathering and, you know, market intelligence while they're building the product rather than after the fact, going out and trying to validate it after they've built something um, mm -hmm. are, are for sure um, more likely to be successful. I, I, I would also say 
um, the founders who understand that they have to be the ones to close the first sales and don't mm -hmm. think that they can just go hire someone to do that mm -hmm. um, tend to be much more successful. Mm -hmm. So, and that means even if they're engineers by background, that means even if they've never sold something in their lives, mm -hmm. uh, that they understand that that's a key part of building, you know, a successful business at, you know, from ground zero on up. I, I call it founder heroics. Um, they, yeah, and some of our best companies are had founders who were really good at sales too. I mean, okay. yeah. um, Chris Cabrera, who's the founder and CEO of, of Exactly, um, could probably be one of these guys who knows how to sell snow to Eskimos. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. So it makes sense. So sales, some kind of sales skills, at least early, early on so that they believe in the product and get customer validation in person. And then the analytics and uh, intelligence to be able to gather data. Is kind and of the domain idea. knowledge. Yeah. Domain knowledge. Yeah. So, I mean, prior to the, I mean, before gathering that information, you know, you're, you're at such an early stage when you're making investment, you probably have very little data to make that decision. Um, mm -hmm. What else is kind of your personal criteria you're looking for in a winning startup to invest in um, prior to knowing well, that information? Here? Well, I, I can say this without any um, hesitation. It is all about the people. Okay. All about the people. If you don't have that check mark first, don't bother with the rest. Mm. Um, you know, our best companies are companies I've worked with for 10 and 11 years. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, it's, they're not overnight successes. That's not normal in B2B world that you go from, you know, it can happen in the consumer internet world. It's, I don't know companies where that happens in the B2B world. Right. right. Yeah. And so you have to plan that you're going to work with these people for an extended period of time. There has to be um, respect, mutual respect. There has to be mutual trust. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just super important that you have those things and don't try um, to make up for it with, oh, but it's such a big market. Oh, but they're so smart. Oh, but they've got, you know, these three great customers. Those are all really important, too. Mm -hmm. But they come after, are these people we respect and trust and, and we believe they have the leadership skills to attract really great talent to join them? Makes sense. I'm just going to flip that question a little bit. What is the most common reason why you would turn down an offer to invest in an enterprise size company? Boy, you know what? I hate to say this answer, <laughs> but there are so many reasons. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's one. And, and I think if my partner, Jennifer, and other people I've worked with who come into venture for the first time have any one surprise. The surprise is how many reasons there can be to say no. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, we look at about a thousand companies a year that meet our overall criteria, wow. and we invest in about four a year. Okay. Uh, now we don't do a deep dive into a thousand companies, obviously, sure. but. Sure. Uh, and I'm sure for you, it's 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 similar. I mean, it's, it's sorting the wheat from the chaff is is super important. But you know, I I can't tell you how many companies I've seen where the cap table is messed up even before they raise their first true outside round of funding because they've done like six different angel rounds and they're all you know crazy. And the earlier investors all think they have all sorts of rights that early investors shouldn't have and and mm -hmm. things like that. I've, I mean, we've seen many. Um, more than I'd like to say, because I feel sad about those. I, I'm like, oh my gosh, 
this founder that this has got to get cleaned up, you know, right. if they're going to have any success. And right. sometimes um, we've been the ones who've helped them do that. Many times, you know, we'll look at it and just not think it's possible. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing that we would not do in the past, but even more so today, is do an investment round where the founder thinks they really want to just raise six months or nine months of runway mm. and then go raise their next round because that puts too much risk. And you just, at this stage of a business, you need 15, 18 months of runway. Now I would say even two years where yeah. you don't have to, you're not forced to go raise more capital. You can if you choose, but you don't have to. Um, and maybe the third thing we don't do um, is we just don't do these things that people call club or party rounds where eight or 10 or more investors all write small checks and nobody really is leading. Nobody's really got any governance or, or you know, real skin in the game. Mm -hmm. uh, we like to do rounds with, you know, a very few number of co-investors who are like-minded and putting in, you know, what equates to a substantial commitment from their funds. Got it. And what's kind of your minimum check size, if you can share? If not, we can skip it. So we, we kind of have two strategies. We're typically mm -hmm. writing a check of seven fifty to a million, mm -hmm. but um, there are a very small handful of transactions that we'll do even earlier that we'll write a two fifty k check for. But those are typically um, investments where we think we may come in and potentially lead the next round. Got it. Makes sense. Cool. Uh, Cindy, last question. What are you most excited or curious about at the moment? And where do you plan to focus your efforts for the, the second half of 2020? Well, I think anybody who invests in the enterprise space and, and doesn't believe that the world has changed permanently because of COVID is, is just kind of um, missing things. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we invest in what people like to call the future of work. But okay. future of work includes the whole industry 4.0 area. Um, and, and there's a huge amount happening there to enable automation and to leverage AI and machine learning in particular to improve, um, you know, it, it's kind of like the way I thought about the cloud in the past, better, faster, cheaper, mm -hmm. right? And, yep. and that's being applied across basically every kind of functionality you can imagine. We have two companies in the video analytics space. They do entirely different things. Uh, but both of them are leveraging AI to do what they do in, in ways that literally couldn't have been done in the past uh, mm. because of the vast volumes of data that both they need and that that is available. So um, the application of machine learning to solve problems better, faster, cheaper, the ability to do that in, a, in production and operational environments, not just in, you know, um, uh, I don't know, I guess I would call it science labs, <laughs> um, mm -hmm, yeah. you know, you know, really making it truly operational. There, there is so much opportunity in that area from security to the operational platforms themselves to the um, different types of, of uh, engines to support that. It's, it's a super interesting area. That's awesome. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the future of work. We had uh, Gary Swart. I think he was the uh, he's a partner at Polaris Partners. He was on, on our podcast a couple episodes. So you guys should check that out if you're interested in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, how can our audience get in touch with you if they're looking to just connect or possibly even pitch their, their startup to Luminate? 
Okay. So I, um, I would urge them to just email contact at illuminate.com because okay. I'll be really honest. If I tried to triage everything, it will be slower uh, than if they do that where our whole team has access to that email mm-hmm. and, um, and we'll, you know, proactively take steps to, to respond. Uh, so if, if it's not me, you know, it might be my partner, Jennifer, it might be media on our team. There are others as well, but um, we try literally to respond to every contact that we receive. Nice. That, that's very nice of you. Um, thank you so much, Cindy. This was great. I highly appreciate it. And My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.